Let's go now to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, I've been excited about, I've not been excited about announcing this series on the Ten Commandments, but I've been excited about doing this series on the Ten Commandments. Chris and I are going to go back and forth. Uh, I'll take two weeks, he'll take a couple of weeks, and we'll go back and forth through uh, the Ten Commandments. And today we're looking at the preface of the Ten Commandments, and we find that in Exodus chapter 20 and verse verses 1 and 2. Hear God's word. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then I want to couple that with John 14, 15, where Jesus says, um, this, this makes this pivotal statement. He says, if you love me, you will obey me. Uh, so let's go to the Lord now and ask that he open our hearts and minds as we consider uh, the context of the Ten Commandments and the context of the law and the relationship between law and love and law and grace. Let's go to the Lord now. Father, we thank you that you are a God that is full of grace and truth. Lord Jesus, you were the living, breathing manifestation of grace and truth. Uh, You were the essence of the collision of grace, love, and truth. And yet, Father, we have such a hard time. Um, We have such a struggle with marrying your law with love. At times we feel burdened by your law. At times we feel encouraged by your love. (laughs) And yet, Father, rarely are we passionate about your law because of your love and because of your grace and because of what you've done for us in delivering us to yourself. Oh, Father, we need your Spirit to come in a very real and present way. Uh, These people before me are without hope, and I am without hope if I am their hope this morning. So, Lord Jesus, would you make yourself known by your Spirit? Would you open our hearts and minds to the beauty of the law? And yet, O God, do that through the cross. Would you lift high the very work of Jesus Christ and show us how we have settled for much less? O God, would you bring great gospel renewal in us this morning as we consider your your commandments and as we consider your love? We need you in this place today. God, give me clear thoughts and a clear mind. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My mother experienced a divorce when I believe I was in the fourth grade. And about a year later, a year and a half later, she uh, married a man that lived in Memphis. And um, we were Methodists, semi-Methodists. We didn't go to church a whole lot. And my stepfather was Baptist, and so we became Presbyterian. Uh, that's, that is the science of how your pastor became a Presbyterian right there. Uh, and as a good Presbyterian, I think God had something to do with it as well, uh, for which I thank him. However, I wasn't thanking him in the fifth grade when they dropped me off at Sunday school for the first time. Um, really, I don't know if I went any more than that first time. Uh, because that's really the only only class I remember. 
Uh, I walked in, and the first thing I remember is seeing a white poster board on the wall. And you've probably seen these, those of you that grew up in the church or at least got dropped off once in Sunday school. The, the top of the poster were the dates for that quarter, and on the left side of the poster were the names of the children in the class. Well, if you're new in that class, the first thing they do is they take their pen and they put your name on the bottom, and you're faced with your name and all these other children that are there on a weekly basis and all the stars they have for all the memory verses that they have learned. And all I remember about that morning is feeling so inadequate that I never wanted to come back. I remember just thinking, I am so far behind, there is no way that I could ever catch up with these kids. And when we announce this whole topic of the Ten Commandments, I have a feeling that's how some of you are feeling this morning. You're thinking, oh great, I already know. You don't have to tell me. (laughs) Matter of fact, I may skip the next few weeks. You see, the law has such a negative connotation because we are lawbreakers. And we're going to talk about that. But I want you to know as well, I want to encourage you that I think most of us as Christians have abused the law too and used it wrongly in the sense that we look to the law as some kind of power that it's not. And if you hear me say anything this morning, hear me say this, the law, the Ten Commandments and the law of God is not the power to change you. And if you go to the law to change you, you're going to be either a self-righteous, smug person or a despondent person who gives it up, and there's really nothing in between. The law is not the power to change you, but the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God is. Love is the power to change your will. Let me, let me give you an example of this. I experienced this uh, clearly in the 10th grade. Uh, I had met my wife once before, but um, we, I guess, reconnected on a church camping trip. Um, and that weekend, or really that ride home from that weekend, I fell in love with this girl. And all of a sudden, my life began to go in a different direction. I started going to choir concerts at Briarcrest High School. A ninth grader at Christian Brothers, I promise you, was not interested in choir concerts at Briarcrest unless it was for one thing, and that is love. I started going to girls' volleyball games. I started going to soccer games and and softball games. I started driving 30 minutes out to Eads, Tennessee, because that's where this girl lived. And I never let her meet me in town. No, 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 no. I mean, love drove. No, I'll come get you, honey. I'll come get you. I began spending my time, I began spending my money, I began spending the who I spent time with, my friend group, my community changed, everything changed. Why? It wasn't the law, it was love. And yet interwoven into love were all kinds of laws. I mean, I became obedient. And there's the connection. You see, relationship must precede obedience. And that's what God is telling us. He, he tells us that in John 14, 15, love me. Because if you love me, then you'll obey me. 
then it's not a new concept. We see it at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. He says, look, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you remember what your life was like before me? And don't you trust me? Don't you trust that I'm going to tell you what is true and what is right and what is good? Don't you trust me because we are in relationship with each other. You know I have your best interest out for you. It's not me standing back here saying, get it together or else. It's it's not me saying, okay, I'm willing to hook up with you as long as you put out. It's God saying, I give myself to you in a covenant relationship and nothing can change that. And therefore, obey me. Don't you want to know what pleases me? If I'm your lover, you will. You see it? It's radically different than how we typically approach it. You know, God never designed us to live without love nor obedience. But the two are inseparably connected. We see this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6. through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. You, hear, you see that? You know you're in relationship with God. You know you've fallen in love, is a better way to put it. How? If we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. I mean, what if I'd gone to Rachel and say, Honey, I love you, but hey, meet me in town every time. Oh yeah, you're paying for the meal. Oh, yeah, no, I don't really like your friends. I mean, no, she would, she would see through that in a heartbeat. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. See it? The love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Dear friends, at the heart of obedience, or excuse me, at the heart of Christianity is loving obedience. If we have a lawless life, it's not because we hate the law, it's because we don't love God. Make that switch in your head right now. If you're living a lawless life, it's at that point that you don't hate the law as much as you don't love God. You're loving yourself. So let's look at it. Two things this morning, I know, never preached a sermon with two points, but here there's always a first for everything. Uh, Number one. Obedience is the act of crossing our will for God's. Because obedience is so far-fetched for most of us, we don't even really think much about it, or we assume we know everything about it. So we have to define it. We've got to do some work this morning. What is obedience? Obedience is crossing my will for the will of God. And we all get that, and let me show you how. Um, Thursday morning, my alarm went off. can't remember some ungodly time of the morning. And I kind of rolled over, grabbed my phone, turned the alarm on my phone off, and I hit the weather app, and it was 9 degrees. Now, the alarm was to get me out of bed and get me to the gym. But I had this down comforter on me, and it was feeling good. And the battle of the wills started. The YMCA saying, if you love me, you'll obey me. But my comforter was saying the exact same thing, and I obeyed my comforter. I'm not getting out of bed for that. I'm right here. We all understand. I mean, what would happen for me to live a disciplined life in that moment? You see the connection between obedience and discipline? They're really the same thing. I would have to let something outside of me cross my will. 
I would have to move in a direction that I, in that moment, didn't like and didn't agree with. But by faith, I'm trusting that this is the right way to move and the right way to go. And it's interesting, we all know in the physical realm that that is where life is. Rachel and I are big fans of The Biggest Loser. We watched it last night, uh, the, the last uh, episode of The Biggest Loser. People come into that show at the beginning of the season about 80 to over 200 pounds overweight. And by midway of the season, toward the end of the season, they've lost it. It's unbelievable. It's a beautiful story of redemption, great picture of redemption, and, and that's why I'm watching it, I'm sure. Um, but how does a person lose weight? They come in saying, my way has not worked. And so I'm going to put myself under this trainer, and I'm going to eat the way they tell me to eat, and I'm going to exercise the way they tell me to exercise. I'm going to let that trainer, I'm going to give them the authority to what? Cross my will. And I hear it time and time again, especially at the end of the, uh, the series, at the end of the, uh, the season, and I heard it last night. Um, somebody who had lost 130 pounds or something, they said this, I feel as if I'm alive again. Ah, sounds like the gospel. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Do you see that? That the law, that this fence, that they, they, they've said, okay, I'm coming to this camp. You know, and, and here's this fence around me and all the bad stuff. But this fence is good. And I can work and I can play and I can eat and I can exercise and I can have relationships, but it's inside this fence when I go out there, I know what's going to happen. You see, that is the law of God. Obedience is allowing our wills to be crossed. So why in the world do we think that it's any different in a spiritual and moral realm? Why do we define moral and spiritual freedom as being true to yourself? That's the commandment of our day. I mean, you're not really achieving humanity unless you make your decisions by being true to yourself, by following your heart. Now, there's some elements in truth in that. There's some elements of good stuff in that. But at the base level, we need to understand that it is a lie. Jeremiah 17 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You see, if I stayed in bed every single morning, and I ignored my alarm every single morning, there would be physical, a physical price to pay. And it's the same way in the moral and spiritual realm. If I listen to what my heart wants much of the time, everything around me is jeopardized. And you're the same way. Because our hearts are not neutral, friends. Our hearts are not neutral. Our hearts want what they want. And in Romans 1, we see that God gave us over. When we fell in the garden, God gave us over to our natural desires. And so being true to myself... And doing what my heart wants, just following my heart, is going to lead me to a very self-centered, destructive life. And I see that all the time. I see marriages breaking up, and what does the husband or wife tell me? I just have to be true to myself. I know God wants me to be happy. 
Dear friends, that's a lie. It's a lie. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to love. He wants you to be so free that you can love in the manner that He loves. And guess what? He's in relationship with you and you don't love Him very well. But He doesn't divorce you. He doesn't run from you. You say, Richard, that's hard. I know. We saw this in our our series on um, sexuality and sex several months ago. Um, And just... You know, we, we dug deep into this whole reality of how we as a church and we as a, a culture have been duped in the whole area of sex. Um, we, we thought that the sexual freedom and, and redefining, um, you know, relationships in terms of we can live, you know, with our, uh, our girlfriend or boyfriend before marriage, and that's really the most healthy way because if we don't do that, how are we going to know if we're compatible? I mean, all these, all these shifts from every world religion, hear me, <laughs> all these shifts of our day that negate every world religion, in the entire history of the world. But, oh, we in our day, we figured it out. We, we figured out where real freedom is. Is killing us. Malcolm Muggridge said this. He said, we disobey not because we have to, but because we want to. We disobey not because we have to, but because we want to. To be true to self and Apollo our heart is equivalent to my down comforter, and it's a lie. Let me go a little bit deeper into this whole reality of how believing the lie of just the commandments that deal with uh, with sex are destroying us in our day. Um, Mary Eberstadt wrote a book entitled Adam and Eve After the Pill. And this is one of, one of her powerful observations. She really gets at the heart of how sexual freedom and serial sex is killing romance, killing intimacy. And she says this, In the post-revolutionary world, sex is easier had than ever before, but the opposite appears to be true for romance. This is perhaps the central enigma that modern men and women are up against. Romantic want in a time of sexual plenty. Perhaps some of the modern misery of which so many women today so authentically speak is springing not from a sexual desert, but from a sexual flood. A torrent of poisonous imagery beginning now for many in childhood that has engulfed women and men only to beach them eventually somewhere alone and apart, far from the reach of one another. You see it? I know you feel it. I hear you. I hear the longing of your soul. I know that, yes, it is fun in the moment. It is pleasurable in the moment, but the morning is miserable. And that may be why you drink so much. And it may be why you you dull your senses with travel or some other hobby. Because you're killing yourself. Because you're running away from what God says is true and good. Pornography is another example Norman Doidge, who wrote The Brain That Changes Itself, Stories of Personal Triumph from the Frontiers of Brain Science, writes this. Pornographers promise healthy pleasure and relief from sexual tension, but what they often deliver is an addiction, tolerance, and an eventual decrease in pleasure. Paradoxically, the male patients I work with often crave pornography but didn't like it. 
You see, what happens is when you live in a fantasy world, reality can't never live up to the fantasy. And so no woman or no man should even try to do so. And yet that becomes our expectation in place of reality. And we live frustrated and unable to really commit to somebody else. If we're not willing to cross our will for God's in the area of sex or any other moral area, we have no hope of living a disciplined life. Do you see that? If there's not a law outside of yourself, just like in every other area, that is drawing you to a a, a different place, then you have no hope for discipline nor morality in your life. You have to have an outside standard. And as Christians, we believe that standard is the very law of God. Furthermore, sex outside of relationship, of covenant relationship, is always damaging to women. Go talk to a single mom and see how freeing sex has been to her. It's damaging to women. It's also damaging to our economy, of all other things. Sexually transmitted diseases cost $16 billion each year to treat with 19.7 million infections diagnosed annually. You see, here's the principle that I want you to get straight in your mind. You can go break God's law. I can go break God's law, but not without breaking myself. In fact, truly, you can't break God's law. You can only be broken by it. And that's just true. There's nowhere to run from the realities and the consequences of breaking God's law. So that's what obedience is. It's coming under it. It's saying, okay, I'm going to submit to this standard. I'm going to let you cross my will. That's what obedience is. But secondly, obedience comes in response to relationship with God, not in place of it. So let me make sure I'm I'm making clear where I'm going with all this. As Chris and I progress through the Ten Commandments one by one, we need to understand what obedience is. That's, you know, it's it's not just agreement... It's actually allowing your will to be crossed, okay? Um, A lot of times people think it is agreement. In other words, if I sit there and watch The Biggest Loser, and I agree with every single uh, recommendation they have about exercise and food, but I don't obey it, I don't allow those rules to cross my will, then uh, me simply agreeing with all the the stipulations and rules from The Biggest Loser are not going to make me healthy. I've got to allow those rules to enter my life, and I've got to get in a battle with them and let my will come up under them. It's not just agreement, but it's actual action. But also, obedience comes in response to relationship with God, not in place of it. We, can't, we cannot twist that, and we have in the church. Let me go a little bit deeper here. Love makes obedience necessary because you obey what you love. All right? Love makes obedience necessary. In other words, there's no way that you can't be in love with something and not obey it. All right, you can't say, well, I absolutely love whole wheat bread. But you never eat it. You eat white bread all the time. See what I'm saying? But the opposite is is true. You can... Um, if you really love whole wheat bread, you're going to eat whole wheat bread. However, 
There is no way to obey without love. And yet, here is what we do inside the church. We typically use the law to get to God. We say, I'm going to get to you through your law, and it never works. Because what we do is we become self-righteous or we become absolutely despondent. There's a group of people in the Scriptures that attempted this, and their name were the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were not bad simply because they were Pharisees. Uh, They should have known the right and true way to live. But what the Pharisees did is they basically got relationship and obedience. They traded uh, relationship for obedience. They said, we're going to get to God. We don't need all that touchy-feely stuff. We're going to get to God through the law. And so what they did is they brought the law down to a whole host of attainable, reachable uh, targets. And they were rigorous in their moral um, um, obedience. They lived these outwardly moral lives. And yet there was a problem. When Jesus came, he looked at them and he said, you are twice as much a son of hell as the devil. You are, you are children of your father, the devil. Indeed, they were not converted, most of them. You remember, who's the most famous one that we know? Nicodemus. Where do you think the, Jesus' conversation in the most evangelistic verse ever quoted in the Bible? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He was speaking in the context of Nicodemus. And so as we look at this, we have to understand that the law doesn't get us to Jesus, or the law alone is not power to get us to Jesus. All right? I know this because my huge tendency for the first probably, I don't know, 10, 12, 13 years of being a Christian was this whole tendency of Phariseeism. Um, right after I was converted, came, became a Christian as a ninth grader uh, in my youth group at my church, I had a, a passion to please God. And during that time of history, that was a long time ago, and during that time of church history uh, in the United States, the, the evangelical reformed church was responding um, really against liberalism and liberal theology. And so you had this big debate going on, and, and the reformed evangelical conservatives were holding up doctrine, the authority of the scriptures, the inerrancy of the scriptures, uh, holding up the orthodox beliefs of the virgin birth, and, and so forth. And so right after I became a Christian, I came to my Reformed Presbyterian church. You know what they did? They said, here, this is how you really become a good Christian. You read all this Reformed theology. And so as a ninth grader, I'm reading Lorraine Bettner's book on predestination. And I'm devouring it because I love Jesus. And I can't wait to be as good as all these other Christians around me. And yet over time... I replaced biblical knowledge and theology and the ability to espouse it and argue it for Jesus. And my heart, I even went to seminary. Oh, I pleased the church. They even paid for my seminary. They sent me off the star. And I go to seminary and I become twice a son of hell as I was before. Because I learned Greek and Hebrew. Then I was really dangerous when they turned me loose on the church. But I was even more dangerous to my wife and my children. Because righteousness was knowledge and obedience 
to whatever the reformers wrote in all their books. And it was hell. It was hell for them. It was hell for me, but I wasn't willing to admit it. And yet one day, God came crashing down upon me, really through my wife, and helped me see. It was like a a two-by-four to the head of saying, now wait a minute, my wife is miserable, and yet I think I'm progressing as a Christian. Something must be wrong. And I had someone disciple me, and for the first time in my Christian life as a believer, I began to see that Christian growth was all about allowing the law not to prop me up, but to expose who I really am, so that I might run to Jesus, and He might do in me and through me what I can't do for myself. And friends, that's a different way of living the Christian life. Are you a smug, self-righteous Christian? Are you a despondent Christian this morning? You're in both places or either place because at some point you've stopped looking at Jesus and you've only looked at the law. And so what you have to do, you smug, self-righteous person... (laughs) is you've got to see that you really haven't been looking at the law. Because the law says, love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And I promise you, you're not fulfilling it because you don't eat out on Sunday afternoon or because you do your quiet time once a day for 365 days in a row or because you're an officer of the church or because you serve in this capacity, or you give this amount of... It doesn't matter. You're a lawbreaker. Because there is no way on this planet that anybody that's ever lived other than Jesus Christ and Adam and Eve, they had the opportunity to, but they blew it, can ever live under the law of love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And so, dear friends, the most freedom comes by you understanding that you're a lawbreaker. It comes by seeing the vast, how deep and wide and high God's holiness is. But only that you might run to Jesus and say, but Jesus. And say, there he is. He bridged the gap between your holiness, O God, and my sin. So praise be to Jesus. I want you to look at this diagram. Did I I send that diagram in? The cross chart? There we go. I don't know if you can see what's going on, but when you become a Christian, you become a Christian at the point that you understand God's holiness, that there's a real distance and separation between your sin and God's holiness. His law, what he demands, and what you can actually do, and what you are actually doing. Because what happens is the cross comes into play, because the cross, Jesus, is the bridge. He lived under the law, under the holy, uh, righteous demands of the law for you. And he, he became your sin on the cross. And God punished him for all of, of your unrighteousness, all of my unrighteousness, And through faith, God the Father receives us and loves us eternally forever, no more and no less than Jesus Christ. 
Because all of the good works of Jesus, he gives credit to our account, or he credits our account with it, so that now the Father sees us and loves us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And do you see what Christian growth looks like? Christian growth looks like you becoming more and more aware of the holiness of God as you study His Word, as you understand the implications of His demands, and yet you also understand in very living and practical ways how far short you are falling, so that Jesus, by the end of your life, He is bigger and better than He was the first day that you believed. That's how the Christian life works. And it's the only way the Christian life works. And the reason that the cross is small to you this morning, the reason that, that, that Jesus is tiny to you this morning, if he means anything to you this morning, is because you've lost sight of the utter holiness of God and the reality of your sin and the beauty of his grace on the cross. And so what you must do is ask God to open your heart to his law, open your heart to your sin, and then open your heart ever so much to his forgiveness and his grace. And not just cognitively believe it, but emotively believe it. Believe it with your heart and soul. The gospel is news, it's information, but it's information that gets to your soul and changes you. I can tell you a lot of things about my wife, but that doesn't prove that I love her. My love proves that I love her. That knowledge has turned my heart in a direction that said, I will be faithful to you. And so, dear friends, and when I'm not faithful to her, when I wane in my responsibilities, when I don't love her all the time, (laughs) which I don't love her all the time, I repent and I come back and I try to love better. And that's, that's the beauty of the cross. But we do it in the atmosphere of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And nothing can separate us from that love. So dear friends, as we look at the law over the next several weeks, let it come crashing in. It's our job to show you how huge and, and all the implications that we can possibly give you on a Sunday morning. But only so that Jesus might grow bigger. And by the end of it, we might have a a huge Jesus because we have a huge law. (laughs) And we realize what a huge sinner we really are. But a sinner who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. If you don't believe that, I call you to that this morning. Um, And if you do believe it, I call you to that this morning too. May we all leave here believing the very same thing. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're a God that gives us your law not to crush us. It crushed Jesus. It crushed him. But it will not crush us because we are in him. So, Father, I pray that the lights would go off in our hearts and minds that Jesus would get so big to us that we would want to obey him and live for him and that we would naturally do so in light of the cross. God, would you make that so of us in this room today, that the world might know that you are God, that you might get the glory you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond to the beauty of the cross as we bring our tithes and as we bring offerings over and above those tithes, uh, gifts to our King this morning. Amen.